Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tun Miai, the producer with our host Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. Hi everyone. So before we get started today, I'd like to say a big thank you to the Professional Artists Institute for sponsoring this episode of Art Grind. Their mission is to help artists make a living from their work and basically survive and thrive as an artist so that we don't all have to work multiple jobs in order to support our passion. So if you're anything like me and prefer to spend time in your studio making art rather than marketing your work and kind of concentrating on the business side of things, then check out some of their free trainings at professionalartist.com free and get a free training on how to get your next art collector. I promise that you will like it and it will help because it helps me. All right. Bye everyone. Enjoy the episode. Oh, hello, Art Grind listeners. Marshall Jones here with Dina Brodsky. And today we are interviewing Jansen Stegner, an amazing contemporary painter. We went through a lot of topics from style to AI to art periods. And I think that's relevant because he's really someone who was sort of at the forefront of a certain style that has become more increasingly popular. And we sort of wanted to talk about how that feels and how does one come upon a style and what is he picking and choosing from things that clearly aren't coming directly from observation and bringing a lot of himself into it. And it was just a really lovely conversation with a super talented guy that uh, I'm grateful he came on the show. Dina, what'd you think? He was wonderful. And he was also, he was warm and open and generous. And yeah, I I hope you guys like it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. I'm host Marshall Jones here with Dina Brodsky. And today we're very lucky to have a phenomenal painter, Jansen Stegner, on today. Jansen is someone who caught my attention on Instagram primarily. And I fell in love with his work and we're very excited to talk to him. Jansen, how you doing? Good. Nice to be here. Yeah, great to have you on. So I, I'm curious about your education. Like, uh, where did you learn to do these type of paintings? Wait, actually, you know what? Before before we get into Jansen's education, maybe go back like a little earlier, right? Um, is that, were you one of these kids that drew all the time? Um, you know, like, yeah. like, how did all of this start for you? Sure. Yeah. Um, I was definitely one of the kids that drew all the time. For me, it was uh, comic books were my main interest when I was, uh, you know, starting around third or fourth grade, even through parts of high school. I was uh, a big fan of like fantasy art, Conan the Barbarian, Frank Frazetta stuff and and comic books that I would I basically like learn to draw the figure by copying, copying the pictures in these in the comic books and in fantasy posters and stuff like that. And, and so that was a big interest to me. I really liked this sort of semi-realist qualities of comic books and fantasy art where it's, it's like, it's grounded in reality, but it's, it's also this sort of hyper, sometimes idealized, sometimes fantastical version of reality. And I kind of really responded to that kind of dynamic. 
so yeah, I learned, I spent a lot of time drawing, uh, made comic books with my friends. And uh, sometime in like middle of high school, some friends of mine sort of introduced me to like, I remember a friend gave me a book on Van Gogh and I took a look at that and realized like, oh, wow, there's stuff outside of comic books that are interesting too. Before that, I had kind of thought that like people who look at, you know, this highbrow art, that they're just like being pretentious and they don't really, it's it's not really that interesting. It's just like, they want to think that they're, you know, super smart and cultured and, and stuff. And that, But then when my friend showed me this Van Gogh book, I, I realized like, it's actually, there's actually some really, really great things in, you know, the more, the higher art world, I guess. And so that's when I started to get into, you know, painting Van Gogh and Picasso and whatever else and, and decided that, yeah, comic books are great, but I'm, there, there's much more interesting things for me going on in, you know, the history of European painting, basically. So. And uh, where were you geographically? Like, where did you grow up? Uh, Minneapolis. Were there any good museums around? Like, once you discovered that you're interested in, you know, the history of European painting, was there anywhere you could go to look at that in person? Yeah, I mean, there's the uh, Minneapolis Institute of Arts and the the Walker Art Center is there too. Those are both great places. And, you know, the Minneapolis College of Art and Design is like kind of adjacent to the Institute of Arts. And, and so like in late high school, I started taking, you know, drawing or pastel or painting classes uh, there because, you know, there's this program where high school students can take these college art school courses. And so I started doing that. But yeah, there's the Institute of Arts has a decent collection. I didn't spend a ton of time in those museums at that point. It was more later when I went to Europe later uh, in college and stuff and some trips to New York that I started to really see like great art collections around the world and stuff. Um, so what happened next? Like you're you're in high school, you're still into comic books, but also Van Gogh and Picasso. And th- then what happens? Then, you know, I went to college. I thought I decided I was going to study um, painting, but also film. I had a big interest in movies uh, and I was not 100% sure which way I was going to go. So I went to school at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, where they they seem to have like a decent art program and a decent film program. Um, After about a year, I realized that film requires a lot more organization and working with other people and getting stuff. There's much more logistics in film and that that just was not going to work out for me. (laughs) So, I mean, that was part of it. That's the other part. Yeah, right. (laughs) And, but also I just realized like painting is really much more exciting and much more interesting to me. And, and I'm, I'm less interested in a moving image than I am in just creating like a perfect, uh, you know, an image that remains still, but that is perfect in and of itself that you can just sit and look at for as long as you want, basically. So I, I decided to stick uh, with the painting and drawing major and, and drop the film stuff for, for good, pretty much. So after that, I graduated and went back to Minneapolis to try to see if I could uh, start a a painting career there. And so I worked a, you know, a night job as a valet parking cars, and I would paint during the day, did that for a couple of years. And really nothing, nothing was like working out for me. I wasn't getting galleries to come over and do studio visits or anything. And I kind of realized that 
you know, as some of my professors had told me, like, if you're really serious about, about having an art career, you need to get to a major city, especially New York. And so I tried to figure out a way to get out there and decided that I'm not the kind of person that could just like pick up and move to New York from Minneapolis by myself without knowing anybody. So I went to grad school in, at the University of Albany and started inching my way closer to New York City, where I eventually moved in 2001. At that point, you know, got a job at an art gallery for a couple of years, showed my work around and started showing at galleries some, you know, shortly after that. What did your work look like in the early 2000s? Uh, in the early 2000s, there was a kind of mix of things. I was doing these, I guess, like unrealist figurative paintings, similar to what I do now, like these sort of portraits of figures with distorted or exaggerated uh, proportions and whatnot. Uh, but I was also doing these sort of weird, like battle paintings of small figures that were fighting each other and they I would do they were like often police officers versus sort of civilian type people and I would base them on clay models that I would build these kind of intricate models of all these little figures fighting and then I would try to make paintings out of that and so that it was and I've, I've kept up some of that uh, practice still but in a different different manner I eventually I was doing these like these, like I said, these cop battle paintings that were sort of to me like, I don't know, I guess they were like illustrations of like psychological struggles or something like that, you know, with the id, the id versus the superego or something. And but eventually I also did these these sort of portraits of police officers as a part of that series of work. And I just kind of was eventually realized like the main thrust of my work is more about these portraits than about these weird, intricate battle paintings. And so I kind of just tossed that stuff kind of aside and started and did like a long series of uh, police officer paintings. Mm. It's like portraits of police officers. I really oh. like those police officer paintings. They're great. So what was learning to paint like for you? Like, did you have teachers that taught you exactly what you wanted to know? Or was it knowledge that you kind of had to dig around for by yourself? The latter, for sure. I was taught how to draw, like I had good drawing teachers, but painting was just, my entire painting education was, uh, I guess, kind of theoretical. We would talk about like, does this painting work? Does it doesn't work? Uh, what are you trying to do here? And uh, it was all good, you know, like information about how to communicate what you're doing, but there was zero technical advice whatsoever, which in hindsight, to me, feels like, you know, painting is a technical process, no matter how much theory or ideas you have behind it. And so you kind of have to know how this stuff works. Um, and and so I kind of had to figure that that stuff out on my own, really through experiments and reading books. And, you know, in recent years, just like YouTube videos or whatever. Yeah, kind of, that, that brings, I was like reading a lot of interviews with you and preparing for this and they, they kept um kind of focusing on things that i i'm curious to know if you feel like that's what your work is about like it was a lot of questions about how you depict women and stuff and mm -hmm. as a painter i'm always focused on the formal aspects of a painting you know and right. 
it doesn't really occur to me how the elements are depicted, you know, it's just sort of content. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you think those lines of questions and the read on your work kind of misses the point of it a little bit. Do you, or, or maybe it's exactly the point. What, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, there's, I think about things in kind of a similar way of what you're describing where it's like the, the formal things kind of come first or, or just how I'm feeling or, or what kind of, uh, what, what interests me, what I want to see or something like that. And, and so, yeah, so like, I guess with the specifically about the paintings of women that you talk about, like, uh, you know, I painted a lot of sort of muscular uh, women and, and it's kind of uh, something that I've been interested in for a long time because it's, you know, I mean, even going back to like the, those cop paintings, the police officers, there's this sort of, uh, dichotomy of like power and beauty like a powerful like a police officer is a powerful figure he's an authority figure but I would paint them as these sort of like you know live beautiful uh young women which kind of like for me was sort of blending these two different uh elements together this sort of like traditional you know quote-unquote feminine beauty with this sort of you know masculine quote-unquote masculine like authority and power kind of idea and and that's kind of something that's remained in my work like for a long time really is is uh and is you know the sort of like like I like to paint women slightly more masculine than they seem to be and I like to paint men often a little more feminine than they seem to be and it's it's not I'm not trying to make some kind of point about that it's just uh it's something that that for whatever reason interests and excites me. And so I just kind of like follow my intuition on that. Hmm. And if you feel like someone who the paintings to me communicate someone who loves to paint and it's like content is almost an excuse to paint. Do, do you, do you put a, either one of those forward in your mind? Like does the form illuminate the content or does the content there to just just sort of be an excuse to paint more or less. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of both. Like, it's definitely like the form is what I get excited about. That's what you know. I really, can tell thrilled. that looking at them. That's, That's why I good. Love That's great. I'm, I'm, I'm glad of that because, yeah, like uh, the, the, like if there's any one thing that I would like people to take away from looking at my work is to like understand the joy that I feel in like putting a painting together, and I hope that that uh, that some of that th- just like visual thrill is communicated to other people in a way that, you know, does something for them, I guess. So yes, content, I, I t- tend to sort of like, well, I guess with both, both the form and the content, I'm kind of in, intuitive and I just sort of trust my own like interests and my own like obsessions or, or thoughts. I don't try to have an agenda or to spell out a I mean, it's a clear like message or something like that, really. So um, what are your interests and obsessions? Well, it's, I mean, I guess what has been interesting me for a long time, like I mentioned, is this sort of uh, this, the, the idea of uh, strength and power and beauty in the same kind of uh, physical form, I guess, like uh, images of what that, ex- that have both those kind of masculine and feminine sort of, and I'm using like, you know, this is, 
you know, kind of quotes around masculine and feminine, like strength and power being one side of like the human condition. And then like this beautiful beauty, grace and poetry on another side and trying to sort of bring them together, uh, you know, you know, maybe in a way that's like reminiscent in some ways of like, I think of like classical Greek sculpture or something uh, where they seems like both of those ideas kind of seem to inhabit the same uh, the same subject. My other interests in like and like obsessions and stuff like I are a lot of them are visual, you know, like I am very interested in in landscape, beautiful, weird landscape and trying to come up with some kind of language for landscape that is uh, that is, you know, my own kind of language and how I can work a figure into something, into a situation like that, where it feels like the uh, the figure and the landscape are kind of of the same imagination. I guess those are the kind of things that are like really interesting to me right now. Oddball realist painters are like the thing that's most interesting to me. It's like, you know, seeing something, painters that can, that represent reality in a way that's recognizable, but is also so, unique and different that it's clearly their own kind of creation and a world that is their own, you know? And so yeah. it oh sounds kind of like what you're describing. Yeah, but, like, you see it... yourself, wait, wait one second, as an yeah. oddball realist painter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's like, I mean, it, yes, I do. And I think that there's, there's been a lot of them sort of throughout history, uh, you know, going back to like El Greco is one of my, big idols who I see as being kind of just like kind of an oddball figure to painter. He's, he has a bunch of skills that are great, but he's also got this vision that is, uh, you know, unlike anybody else and feels like you're inhabiting his consciousness when you're looking at one of his paintings. And those are like my favorite painters throughout history. And they sort of pop up a couple every few generations or something like that, you know? Um, you are totally an oddball figurative painter. I think there's more right. place for that now. There's room for them. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Mm -hmm. You leave Minneapolis, you come to New York, and where does your life go, for, go from there? From there, I, uh, like I said, I'm working at uh, an art gallery and uh, as an art handler and, you know, for a couple of days a week and painting all the other days. I chose to live in Queens because it's less expensive and therefore I wouldn't have to have a you know a full-time job I could get by on two days a week and after a couple of years and actually you know bringing you know this is how old how long ago it was I brought my physical slides around to galleries to show them uh hoping that someone would be interested and and I found like some places that were and so they started selling my work I guess within a couple of years of moving to New York I was able to quit the day job and focus on painting full time. And I've mm. been doing that pretty much ever since then with a few, like done a few, I mean, I've done a lot of commissions over the years and I've worked, uh, you know, I taught at SVA for a year and a few couple other things, but more or less, like I've been lucky enough to, to have a relationship with a gallery or two that keep me in the studio. What, what was your comfort level at that moment with that big life decision to, quit quit the day job and just subsist on painting what did that feel like it well of course it was scary I mean at the time I was you know we lived in a the upstairs apartment in a two apartment 
I guess, duplex in Queens. And my studio was the quote unquote second bedroom, which was actually like a hundred square foot closet maybe. And so, yeah, the, I mean, our expenses were really low at that time. You know, I think our, you know, one and a half bedroom apartment rent was like 850 bucks, which is insane if you think about it today. But so I didn't need that much. We didn't have kids or anything. And so, yeah, it was, it was scary, uh, but I, I had friends at the Matthew Marks gallery where I used to work. And I knew like, if I really need job, I can do freelance art handling and make some quick money now and then. But, you know, it was those years where you sort of like, you go without health insurance, you do whatever you can to, to sort of keep your expenses as low as possible. And, you know, and then being like, I am an artist who's not like fast at producing work in the studio. I just have to spend as much time as possible uh, creating work and, and trying to, you know, get it seen and get it shown and, and get to, uh, you know, the kind of gallery situation that you want to be in. How, how do you create a painting? How do you start <clears throat> from like, is it grisaille? Is it acrylic underpainting? Like what, what's your method? That, well, that's a funny question because I, I'm still like trying to figure out what the best method is. I have, I, I work in a bunch of different ways. Like, I mean, even before I get to, to painting, there's uh, the process of either working with a model and trying to figure out a pose or figuring out a landscape situation or whatever the setting is. I also do a lot of um, like building clay models, like I was talking about before to sort of to work out some of the stranger and more like uh, acrobatic poses that I use that are, you know, impossible for a human model to actually take. Uh, I don't know if you guys can see right back there in the background, there's like uh, It a, looks like a sculpture. Yeah, it's a small clay sculpture of a, mm. of a couple of figures that I'm working on for a painting. Um, so that's part of my process too, is, you know, trying to work it out either through drawing or through the sculpture or whatever. Uh, and then when I get to the painting, I've done, you know, I've done grisaille painting, like full grisaille, the entire canvas. I've done things where I work with the grisaille just for the, the forms that are more, most sculptural and, and, okay. you know, most problematic for me. So I uh, do that and then, you know, glaze color over the top. Um, I had a period where I was obsessed with uh, Manet. So I was just trying to do everything as directly as possible. Um, but I've kind of settled into, you know, some kind of layered grisaille painting for the most part. Sometimes it's just like painting with white on a, like a burnt sienna underpainting or imprimatura and just building up the lights with white. Other times it's it's like, like I use, try the, like the Velasquez method from what I've read about how he worked with. You mix up like nine different grisaille tones and mix them with some of the local color of what you're painting. And so you get this kind of like, you know, you get, it's easy to get the forms, but it's also got a little bit of the final color in it, uh, which is easier than to find once you start glazing or whatever, more uh, translucently over the top of that. So I always have like a very complete uh, drawing uh, before I start. So, and I, so everything is, is just a lot of planning that goes on. I'm not someone who can like just put a canvas on the easel and start 
start working like that, I have to have things, I have to have drawings done. I've got to get it all planned out in advance first. So, and um, so, yeah, like I'm still kind of like figuring out, I'm still experimenting as to what is the, what is the perfect method for me to work a painting? Cause it's like, I, I'm wondering about, <clears throat> obviously like you, you mentioned El Greco and it feels like the distortions you're using have something, you know, uh, a, a, like akin to El, El Greco's type distortions and your, it's what you're painting. Isn't something that's in front of you ever, you know, it's like, it feels like you're you're doing a little bit from this, a little bit from that, yeah. and a whole lot of your imagination. Right. So how do you, the question I'm really wanting to get at in this technique okay. is how do you decide when a distortion is enough? Like what what is governing these more improbable elements in your painting? It's, it's I mean, it's largely just intuitive uh, when I'm, looking at my source material which is either like a model or a photo of a model or something and and I'll do drawings of of the pose the pose is always really important and uh and I just I'm trying to find some kind of interesting balance where it's still recognizable as a as a person but it's it's different from any person that you've ever seen before and that it it has a sort of heightened uh kind of weirdness to it that brings you kind of out of the normal reality that the painting is sort of suggesting that you exist in, you know, uh, it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, bring, should be reminding the viewer of how strange this thing is that you're actually looking at in front of you, that it's not, you know, to take you out of your kind of normal everyday context of reality. It, and I have my sort of like uh, toolbox of, exaggerations that I make that have changed over the years. Like, you know, when I did those cop paintings, it was, I, it was all really just about, mostly about like elongating the forms and making them as sort of long and graceful and delicate as possible. Uh, that has changed more into the, into this sort of like live, but kind of muscular um, forms that have, you know, uh, bigger arms and legs and smaller head and, you know, so these kind of like these distortions that I use, ones that I kind of come back to over and over again, but each one is sort of like has to be kind of felt out on its own to to get to something that because each pose is different. And so there's something about the pose that has to be captured that's essential to it, but also something that has to be changed in order to make it, you know, rise above the level of just like a mundane observation of reality. Right. I like the way that's said, rise above the level of a mundane observation area. That's great. Yeah, it took a while to get there, but I got there. But <laughs> That's beautiful. Uh, like it's such a beautiful, because that's exactly what your work does. Thanks. Uh, mm -hmm. And you, and, and you managed to sum it up in like one beautiful sentence. Uh. <laughs> um, so what does your life look like right now? Uh, right now it's uh, very different than it was five years ago, I guess, which is when I was back in New York. Now I'm, I live, you know, in outside of Santa Barbara, we have a house. I'm in uh, the garage right now, which is my studio space, which is, is great. And also uh, difficult. Like it's, uh, I mean, I love being able to walk in here at any moment and look at the stuff on the wall that I'm working on, 
But unfortunately, anyone else in the family can walk in here at any moment too, and they can start their laundry or something like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were lucky enough to be able to finally uh, buy a house. And we found one that has a, like a good size garage. And so, and basically I didn't realize this when I, when we moved out here, but if you're a practicing artist in this area, you really like your garage is probably going to be your studio because there just isn't any kind of, there are very, very limited other options. Like there's not, I, it, it was impossible for me to find a space to rent for a studio because all of the, you know, industrial buildings that normally, you know, the abandoned industrial buildings that get turned into studios were turned into like uh, wineries and brew pubs 20 years ago. And so there's just nothing left of that. Uh, and so, yeah, so basically artists out here, it seems like they figure out a way to make their garage into the space that they need, which you know, for me required adding some skylights and, uh, you know, some kind of like mini split heat heat system so that my paintings don't freeze on the winter nights. Because even though the weather is great here, it still gets down to 35 degrees in the winter and you can't, you know, you can't leave your paintings out in that. So, so yes, that's my studio. My life is basically like I, uh, you know, I come in here and, and work every weekday i take the weekends off i do a lot of driving my kids to school and to practice for whatever sports they're doing and uh, and you know and then i get to go out and do stuff you know i go to the beach go to just take walks around the area and observe and absorb the beautiful natural habitat around here and that's that's largely it and it seems like the landscape of California has informed some of your more recent paintings as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think I'm I've, after four years of being here, I think I'm finally like figuring out how to really let it into my work in the stuff that I'm working on right now. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, it's it's the for me, it's the best part of like living out here is is the landscape. And, you know, there is there's just, it's so verdant and there's so much variety of things. You've got the ocean, you've got forests, you've got the mountains. Uh, all of this is, is so close and, you know, the weather's so temperate that, you know, if you're a plain air painter, you could really work out here probably 330 days a year or something like that. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty ideal for that. So, so I've, I feel like I'm finally like figuring out how to I mean, even my last show, it, it, you can see the influence of the of the landscape, but I feel like I'm even more so letting it in and, and developing like my own kind of uh, language of it so that it's it's uh, an interpretation of uh, of the landscape as well as the figure instead of the, the landscape being just like a background. Mm. Um, actually, can you talk, um, because you, you're having a solo show in 2024, right? Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah so that's going to be at the Nina Meyer Gallery in New York. And I'm working on, I think it's going to be eight large paintings, which is new for me to have a show that is just large paintings. And I'm hoping to have as many of them focused on figures in the landscape. And really, like I've just been talking about, kind of like getting into the integration of the figure in the landscape and creating a landscape that feels as interesting and unusual as I try to make my figures feel. Um, <clears throat> so that's, you know, taking up 
the majority of my time right now just kind of working on that show. And that's, uh, you know, always as being a slow painter, it's always like this, the major stressful stress that I face these days is like, when's that deadline? How do I get all this stuff done on time? Et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. I have a question that, that sounds a little out of left field, but it's something that's been on my mind a little bit. Like um, you're someone who paints with a very recognizable style maybe that that seems like a, a word that flattens it a little bit but you'd recognize your work from other people's on the wall and now with like ai the rise of that it feels like you could sort of train an ai system on your work and it would just spit some out like how does how does that affect your relationship with the images you're making knowing that that there's almost like a stylification of people who've worked really hard to like you mentioned van gogh like in sure. a way van gogh's been flattened to a style that people mm-hmm. can use now you know how does and what do you think about <clears throat> that, the future of this i mean yeah it's it's kind of scary you you feel like you you develop a language and you want to uh you know to have it as your own basically but yeah the, there is this like I mean, AI could do anything like it could end up uh, like dramatically changing art uh, for the worse or not at all or or what. So but it, it is something that I think about, I guess you just have to kind of keep you have to find a way to just sort of keep evolving and keep, you know, finding new and different elements that you want to investigate. Maybe that's the the answer. Um you know, I guess uh, as until they develop a machine that can like physically make, you know, take an AI design and physically paint it in oil, you know, in a beautiful manner on canvas, like a lot of painters will probably be safe until until that comes. But it's probably going to come at some point, I guess. But I, um, I, I actually feel like Marshall, do you really worry about AI? Because I, I feel like painter you know like painters are in a way safe because what attracts us about painting is like it is the human hand and every time I mean I'm sure by this point both of you have talked to chat GPT at least like you know a few times you can tell it's not human so I have this weird gig reverse engineering social media algorithms for artists but like I kind of like look around sometimes and see what comes up a you can always tell when something got written by an AI like mm-hmm. when some of these like text prompts, like, and I think a lot of people are just using it to write captions and kind of like write, you know, quote unquote content. And it always feels inhuman. But what worries me is actually once I started identifying that, I was like, oh God, artists, some artist statements have been sounding like that for years. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely like an AI artist statement that that artists have been using for a long time, for sure. Um, and- Yes. Um, and I have to say, I've, I've, I don't think I'll ever be tempted to use AI to do anything art related, but mm-hmm. I will totally use it to write an artist statement. I think it writes better copies sure. than, than, oh, than yeah. I do. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's, it's interesting. I'm glad to hear you say that, that uh, I, my only concern is like, I, I agree that you can still always tell, uh, but it's also, it's already gotten so much better than I ever dreamed that it would in my lifetime, that there's part of me that's like, well, there's nothing that I can see that's going to stop it from continuing to get better and better and better. And who knows, you know, yeah. I, 
I, I do think it will get better and better and better, but that like, and it's amazing already. Right. Um, yeah. um, but the kind of the inhumanity of it, like, I feel like we, it can't, it will never be able to make people care because mm-hmm. we don't care, you know, because ultimately what we care about is like other <laughs> humans. And, and I don't even think it's trying to make us care. Like, right. like whatever, whatever mechanisms it's evolving in and working under, that's, true. that's not its intent. And, um, right. and, no, it's, and its intent is just to create more content, you know, like, like I heard a, an AI Beatles song the other day that was, uh, you know, it sounded just like them. It could very much be the Beatles. Uh, it's nothing, you know, there's nothing new about it, but it's, if you like the Beatles, now here's some more content for you. Like that's, Maybe that's the best that it can ever do, I guess. But it feels like content, right? It doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Feel, it doesn't, exactly. It doesn't feel like art, uh, but a lot that's of right. like a lot yeah, of stuff we do on social media also feels like content and not art. So that's yeah, like, right. That's but I true. guess my my fear is those borders are a little ill-defined. Like it starts making art feel like content as well. Like mm-hmm. I think I think that there's positives for sure. Like I heard a, a stat <laughs> now that you know, artificial intelligence can easily beat a human at chess or go or whatever they're programming it on. The the interest in chess has never been bigger. So that's interesting. You know, it's like the way it's bringing more people to it around these conversations. But I think it is kind of, it is encroaching on something really hard one, which is personal signatures that that is kind of strange to me, like mm-hmm. a beat song, like they they worked hard for that sound yeah. and honed it. And now it really is fairly indistinguishable what it can just spit out. In that vein. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, like a Beatles cover bit, like, like humans can cover that Beatles, you know, like like humans can do that, too. Like the thing with the Beatles is that they, you know, they did make something new and something unique. And I feel like that can't be taken away from them. Like you, you can make a replica, but you can't make the actual thing, right? Like, like yeah. you'll always be able to tell an exact, you know, jicle or whatever of, I don't know, a Titian painting from an actual Titian painting. And I think that's the best AI is going to give us is like a beautiful looking s- s- simulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe, maybe uh, I'm just being uh, naive. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's about two days away from like taking right. over to taking over civilization, and I'm just yeah, you know exactly. blissfully ignoring it. Right. Yeah. No, I hope that you're right. I seriously do. Yeah. Then, um, so um, I, I actually know, Marshall. I feel like I've been talking too much. So, Marshall, you, you go ahead. Well, speaking. I mean, speaking of your your style, there are. I mean, look, there are sort of like of you specifically like even kind of human imitators out there. Like, I feel like you were doing, working in this realm really early. And now it feels like in 2023, the art world has sort of caught up. You see a lot of images that look like yours out there, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and what do you attribute that to? What do you think you were kind of ahead of a curve on a little bit? Does is what do you think people are interested in more mannered um elongated forms and a little more playful with the figure than they were say 20 years ago when you started doing that i think uh i mean i think it was kind of bound to happen again um i i think that there was a you know the figure is something that people always return to and 
Uh, and, and I think that there was a kind of a long time in art where, you know, from like the seventies through, you know, almost through like parts of the nineties that it was kind of like, you know, figurative painting was kind of denigrated and people didn't, you know, people in art school weren't taught how to paint. And so you got a lot of like, just a lot of art that's just not that interesting or exciting to look at. And I think that people kind of realize like the, the whole reason people really get into art when they're young is because they love being visually stimulated in some way. And so one of the ways that, that people have loved that is like, is looking at, um, you know, realist based or quasi realist paintings. And, and so there's been this, it seems like this huge sort of interest in learning how to do that stuff again. Um, and, and which I think is based is kind of a, is a good thing really to see people interested in, in how to paint and how to make just more uh, powerful and dynamic images. And I guess, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess like, it's it's figurative painting is just something that it seems like kind of goes in cycles a little bit and now it's kind of like back in again but people also understand like people who are interested in contemporary art uh like you can love the paintings of the past and the great figurative painters of the past but you also uh you don't want to be a clone of the painters of the past like it's you want to bring something new and something kind of fresh to it. It's some kind of modern take to it. And there's all sorts of different ways to do that. You know, the way that I work is one of those ways, I guess. And so, you know, it seems like uh, that's always something that, you know, that artists are, have in mind as well. They want to engage with the past, but they want to, they don't want to be stuck in the past. Yeah, totally. Cause I, I think I, if I'm understanding what you're saying, I'm feeling the same way. Like there is a renewed interest in the figure out there, but it is definitely not like academic studies that the renewed interest is in. It feels like yeah. it, it is people bringing something new, be it a color palette or, you know, some irregular forms or something. It feels like we're really prioritizing the artists bringing themselves to these images. And I think that takes a lot of courage to break from something that feels a little more reliable and, and, and really trust yourself. I guess it goes back to that question I had about how do you know when you've bent something or distorted enough, like it's got to take a tremendous amount of courage and trust in yourself when it's mm -hmm. not just measuring plumb lines in front of a model. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, um, yeah, I just, I guess it's like, you know, I'm not sure. I don't know if there was a question in there, but I agree with what you said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the question was, was like, it, it, it wasn't necessarily a question. It was a follow, just a statement about how yeah. I'm sort of excited where the art world is going. And it feels like it's caught up with someone who was doing this maybe a little ahead of the curve. And now it's mm -hmm. caught up and, and that must feel nice to you. <laughs> no, yes, exactly. No, it's great. It does. I am excited to see like uh, where painting is going. It, it does seem like there's, uh, you know, the painting, painting today feels like it's in a better place than it was, uh, you know, 
I don't know, 40 years ago or something like that. Like, it's just people are interested in engaging with the materials. They're, in, they're not ashamed or afraid of learning, uh, you know, old skills, but then they're also interested in taking those old skills and making new things with them. I think that that's really exciting. Um, you know, uh, maybe it's just that, uh, you know, Instagram helps you see so much more of what's going on out there than you would have before that existed that I, I just see so much more of it. Maybe it's always been around. I don't know. But um, yeah, I, I am excited by that. I am a little there's part of me that's a little jealous of some of these younger artists because it's clear that they're getting uh, some kind of like painting training that uh, that I didn't get. And, and so I can see like look at the way that they, you know, paint a thigh and think like, wow, uh, you know, I still can't do, do it like that. I, I, I'm a little jealous, but so that's why I have to keep, you know, tuning into the YouTube videos every so often to try to keep my technique game as high as I can. So, oh, Jensen, I, I feel like Marshall might not agree with me, but I don't know if you, 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 you might, who knows? Uh, the, so I actually think there's more good art being made right now than like, at you know any point of, of the last like hundred years, I think this is a better time to be an artist um, than it has been in I don't even know how long. Is it like there's just so much good art? There's a lot of bad art being made too, mm -hmm. and also thanks to social media, we get to see all the bad art as well. Sure. Yeah, there, there's so many people who are just enormously talented, and actually, you're like, like I, I sometimes look at like these artists in their twenties, and yeah. I also get a little bit jealous. Where I was like, I couldn't do that. I was still. Right figure out how to like I don't know like like paint an apple mm -hmm. uh, but um I I think what's happening right now is absolutely amazing and the fact that we can see see all of it and if anything I sometimes get a little bit overwhelmed by how many people are out there who are not just technically good but mm -hmm. trying to make something with yeah. with those skills that's not you know just about the skill yeah absolutely no I, I think that there's uh there's truth to that for sure that I mean what we have today that that is relatively new uh, is is we have total freedom. Like you can really do whatever you want. You can do anything, and that and uh, and that that seems like it's it's a great is a great thing for for artists. The problem, you know, maybe twenty years ago, like you still had freedom, but no one knew how. No one had any skills about you know painting or whatever. And now it's like with you, the freedom has, or the, the, like the skills have caught up with the freedom and people are kind of doing, doing everything they can, doing whatever they want. Um, so yeah, I, I agree that it is, uh, it is a good time to be an artist. The, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is, but at the same time, it's also like impossible to know, like, are we just seeing, you know, more of the stuff that we like because it shows up, you know, on our social media or, who knows? Uh, you know, it, I do sometimes look at painting of the past and and feel like you know it doesn't seem like there's somebody that could do that today, like you know, this or that or whatever. Um, and, and that, but overall, I do think it's generally it's generally a very good time to be an artist. I think. I actually think that, you know, so 20 years ago was probably when I went to grad school and I went to like one of the two places at that point where I, you know, you could get like, you know, someone could actually teach you how to paint. Um, mm -hmm. And then I spent the next 10 years trying to defend the fact that I just wanted to paint stuff that looked like stuff. Mm -hmm. And recently I've realized that like, you know, you don't have to have that conversation anymore. Like you don't have to defend what you do because yeah. there's enough space for all of us. Like yeah. That. 
And I don't know if you've ever, I feel like, like you seem very independent minded. And mm-hmm. um, so I don't know if you've ever had that period of time of having to like defend the kind of work that you want to make, but I sure. feel like, you know, now there's just room, room for everyone. Yeah. No, I, I, when I was an undergrad, you know, I was taking uh, like, I would take my figure drawing class over and over again. And I would, you know, in, in my painting class, I was working in these ways. I was very much consciously like trying to develop traditional skills, but I had this idea in my head that was pervasive at the time, which was just like, you can't just be like a, a figurative painter. You can't just go out and do that when you you, ha- you can amass these skills, but you have to do something really unique and different with it. You have to either like, you know, become like, a more abstract painter or like a much more, you know, expressionist kind of style or something, but you can't do like typical figurative painting. And maybe it, that's kind of shaped, shaped me in some way. Cause that's, I have sort of followed that and that I haven't, I have become like what I think of as like a quasi realist painter who, who exists within that kind of language, but attempts to sort of break, like we said before, to break like the mundane, normal normalcy of observation into something different uh but yeah I, I felt like like I really had to defend um being interested in how to draw and how to paint uh at that time but that has sort of been washed away it feels like for sure um, um do you still teach anywhere no not right now um so I occasionally like I, whatever I do workshops like I you know occasionally teach I think Marshall teaches a lot uh-huh. And um and I just feel like there's so much like, like the thing I really get jealous of is that people don't have to fight to get information about painting anymore. Like there's enough people uh, who just give it to them, like, you know, right. and including me actually. The mm-hmm. um the um but but I remember like you know going to the library and looking for all this information because the te- my teachers and undergrad just were completely disinterested in yeah. not just the kind of painting I wanted to do, but a lot of them seemed very disinterested in painting in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think there, you know, like, like the fact that there's a lot more people trying to make a career of this just means that there's more, more painting and some of that painting is bound to be good. Yeah, I think so. I think that I would say like, in our lifetimes, at least, like painting is as good now as it's ever been, right? Mm-hmm. That much, I would say for sure. Do you think there was ever like some golden age? Like what's your, you know, like what age of painting do you romanticize them? I guess I have, I have a few, like, um, you know, of course I love like, you know, like Velasquez and Caravaggio and Ang and all like the, and Goya, especially like these great old masters. But I also, I also like the uh, early 20th century as this period where it's another period that's maybe similar to today where people all the all the painters were trained in the 19th century so they had like these these solid academic skills but then you know 20th century brought about this this period of freedom where you could do anything you wanted with those skills and you have Matisse and you have Picasso and you have Otto Dix and and all these different artists doing weird different things but with but they know what they're doing with with a paintbrush and and i think the second half of the 20th century uh the the idea behind why it's important to teach painting skills was kind of lost and so you get much less interesting painting in my opinion uh mm-hmm. that is like 
they, they have the freedom of the 20th century, but they don't have the skills of the 19th century. And so the painting kind of goes down a bit. And for me, it reaches its like nadir, like in the 1970s, basically. But then, then it seems like things have kind of changed since then. Uh, we, we've embraced, you know, the freedom uh, again, but also this interest in, in how to paint again. And so uh, uh, it's, you know, painting has revived itself in my opinion. So I guess like the periods that I uh, romanticize, I guess would be like the early 20th century. And then, um, I mean, basically like different eras, different areas of Europe, you know, between 1600 and 1800 for the most part, you know, I know it's pretty broad, but. Marshall, how about you? My favorite era of painting? Or like, you know, if you could like have a drink with a group of painters, like, you know, go back in time, like, you know, pick a dodgy tavern. You know, it would it would be England, uh, well, London, and I guess the 60s maybe with Freud and Bacon and stuff. Yeah. That would be, that, that's it for me right there. Sure. They're the that would be great, yeah. Interesting, like... No, I, I I think I'd be with uh, Jensen and like the beginning of the 20th century, maybe like Paris. I feel like those guys had a lot of fun and also probably had the feeling of, you're right, they had the skills, they could do what they wanted, but they they had the feeling of being on the edge of something, right? Like the like uh, like on the edge of like some new magic that they, um, yeah. that they could talk into existence, paint into existence. Like, and and I feel like later in the 20th century, yeah, they lost the skills, but also things became much more like stratified where like, I, I, I feel like breaking rules isn't nearly as much fun in like 2023 as it was in, I don't know, like, like 2008. They've all, they've all been broken. I mean, they, they were all, all the visual rules at least were broken early on. You know, that's part of why that period seems so, uh, so thrilling is they're breaking rules right and left. But then by the time you get, you know, by the time you get to the 70s or 80s, what what formal visual rules are left to break? There's not anything, you know, okay. all you can do is be more, you know, outrageous in some other in your content or something else. And also breaking yeah. rules for the sake of breaking rules, which I think right. is what happened later in the century is yeah, very yeah. different than breaking <laughs> rules because there is this kind of magical, like you could paint into being. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh God, I forgot what the art critic was, but it was such a cool idea that he said like art history was sort of on this hunt for perceptual equivalence, like to make a thing look like a thing. And then he says that that totally ended with Andy Warhol's Brillo boxes, you know, because all of a sudden it was a perfect perceptual equivalence of something so mundane in a gallery. And there's like all this swirling idea around it. And I, I think that as much as the freedom aspect is interesting that sort of like with movie cameras and film and Warhol's Brillo boxes and stuff, we did break perfect, like that equivalence. It's we equated it and, and surpassed mm -hmm. it. So it's like, it's sort of like to, to, you know, the whole bow on this whole conversation is that there've been two tracks like technique and freedom, technique and freedom. And we've sort of reached the sound barrier of both of them. And now it's just like, do whatever, whatever <laughs> you want to mix those with, you can. But I'm not, but right. I'm not sure those tracks were like, I feel like separating those tracks was this like hugely artificial construct. Like, like why, why is technique separate, uh, separate from freedom? Why can't you have both actually? Mm -hmm. yeah, that, yeah. 
And that's what right. we're talking about. Like it's done. It's like, it's everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Why, but why did we separate those two things to begin with? Why was the ability to do something viewed as a trap rather than actually rather than the freedom to do what you want with, with your imagination, like having the skills to do what you, you know, to, to get what's in your head outside of your head. Um, yeah. I, I mean, you could say like, maybe it has something to do with, with photography and like, you know, if this, the painting, painting skills that were so important uh, was a representation of reality when photography comes along that, that, that you have to have a different way to, to, uh, be important as an artist. And so the the ideas that you're working on become much more, I, I mean, like at a certain point, artists wanted to, craft became a bad word. I guess I don't know why exactly, but, uh, and and so you have much more of like a interest in in the concept or, or whatever kind of thinking, word-based thinking beyond that. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't know why they split off, but it's it does seem like we've kind of no no one cares about that split anymore. And I think that's that's a great thing for painting. Do you remember that de-skilling became a thing? What's that? De-skilling. Um, is, is, is that what um it was it was a thing? Um, maybe right like right after I was in grad school, and maybe a few years. Um, I um. Just remember talking to someone who also finished a graduate program and they were, they were, you know, like, like I, I went to like the New York Academy of Art, which was pretty, you know, figurative driven and mm -hmm. at that point, like extremely skill driven. Um, and this person was, I think, probably somewhere more, more, more prestigious, but they were talking about, so de-skilling was a trend in, in art education for a while where people would come in with some amount of skill and I guess, the, the maybe I'm getting it wrong like it's, it's also been a while since I've been outraged about this because um, maybe <laughs> yeah. I'm just not in academia enough that, um but you had to like de-skill a person you know a student to make sure that like they you know had access to their imagine you had to kind of break down the skills that they had and um I, I remember getting really wound up over this uh, you know, some point and it sounds um, like a re-education camp or something. That sounds terrible. <laughs> it doesn't sound awful. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that here's the thing though, it does it sounds awful. But um the people that came up with that were probably reasonably smart people, right? right like right. came up with that, like they, you know, like they were the Ivy League academia academia people, and they did, you know, they were the intellectuals. And when did intellectuals start uh, like like decide that skill and concept were like is a, were antagonistic towards each other? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I guess it happens at that point where the artist becomes ashamed of being a craftsman and wants to be something more prestigious or more important or you know uh, loftier, and so then you become susceptible to these ideas about like uh, you know about de-skilling or whatever else, I guess. I also romanticize like the, I mean, much like everyone else probably, but Florence at the time of the Renaissance, because people were coming up with new rules. It feels like there's a ton of people just sitting around talking, trying to kind of like come up with new ideas of, of yeah. beauty, form, materials, I don't know, oil painting instead of instead of egg tempera. But I, I think I, I partially romanticize it because it was okay for artists to be craftsmen back then. Like, yeah, like, right. Mm -hmm. You know, no one no one wrote artists with a capital A. Uh, <laughs> exactly, right. Uh, yeah, that um, was a great time period too. So 
By the way, what advice would you, you know, I feel like a lot of the people listening to this are artists, like either, mm-hmm. either studying or they're professional artists, but what advice would you give to someone who's kind of like the way that you were back when you moved to New York, like mm-hmm. kind of full of ideas, working as an art handler and trying yeah. to figure out how to make things, you know, make a life as this? I guess like the the most important thing is to make make your studio practice like the most important thing like you have to whatever you're do- is going on with the rest of your life you have to carve out that time to be in the studio thinking about your ideas and working them out and the more time the better um it's just a a, a sad and difficult fact of life that that an artist who has more time to do this stuff is going to be the better a better artist than than one that doesn't have the time to do that so you do what you have to do to do that if that means like uh you know living in a place that is not as expensive as the place where you really want to live or you know as we talked earlier about like you know minimizing your expenses as much as you possibly can uh i think when i was when i was you know in my late 20s and moved to new york it really felt like if you didn't move to new york or la uh, or maybe maybe Chicago that you really didn't have a chance at all of of you know you'd be a one in a million if you if you developed an art career somewhere somewhere else. I don't know if that's true anymore uh, with social media and with you know people are able to see your work uh, visually ever I mean virtually rather than in the flesh. So maybe there are ways uh, to be an artist, a young artist. And you can live in a cheap, inexpensive community and have a nice big studio and have, uh, you know, more time to work because you're not like hustling like crazy to pay your ridiculous studio rent in Bushwick or something like that. Um, those would be the, the main things that I think about. It's like you do what you have to do to keep the studio practice going uh, as as much as possible. It isn't like quality time over quantity time it's quantity time you just have to be in there and putting in the hours i think well uh jansen thank you so much for coming on the show and uh thank you for being a an oddball painter for all of this oh you bet my pleasure if i'm both of those (laughs) (laughs) this was great thanks for talking you bet thanks very much i appreciate it both of you it's such a pleasure meeting you you too You too, Dina. Yeah, I hope that sometime uh, uh, I'll be able to meet you guys both out on the East Coast somewhere the next time I'm out visiting or something. If you enjoyed this episode and you are a visual artist, you can help us keep costs of producing the Nick's podcast to zero by supporting our sponsor. Just go to professionalartist.com slash free and access a free training on how to get your Nick's art collector. That's professionalartist.com slash free. And that link will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I hope you got some good painting done while we entertain you with our amazing guest. If you like what you're hearing, follow and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't done so yet. And if you're so inclined, rate us whether you love or hate us. We love hearing all the different opinions and appreciate the feedback. You can reach out to us at artgrindpodcast at gmail.com or DM us on IG at artgrindpodcast. You faithful listeners have the power to help us grow. So please spread the word. It's free and you'll feel good about it. So until next time, stay on the grind while we fill your mind.